0: Hey guys, welcome back to Daily Kaylee's 13 Days of Halloween. Today, we are continuing the John Wayne Gacy story that we started last night. This is a super, super long case, and I hope that you stay with me the entire time because it's extremely interesting. Anyways, like we said yesterday, Gacy joined a membership at a club by the name of The Moose Club. At this club, he became aware of a Jolly Joker clown club, and the members of this club would perform at fundraisers and parades, and then they would volunteer at children's hospitals dressed as clowns. In late 1975, Gacy joined and created his own clown characters, Pogo the Clown and Patches the Clown. He described Pogo as a happy clown, whereas Patches was a more serious character. You can only imagine. Gacy never really made money off of these performances. He did this because he believed that acting as a clown allowed him to go back to his childhood. He performed as both pogo and patches at numerous local parties, political functions, charities, and children's hospitals. Occasionally, Gacy would remain in his clown costume after performance and would go for a drink at a local bar before turning home. Because of all of this public service as a clown throughout the years, while he was murdering these kids is why he's known as the killer clown his employees at pdm consisted of a lot of high school students and young men gacy would often proposition his workers for sex or he would insist on sexual favors in return for acts such as lending vehicles to his employees he also claimed to own guns and he would threaten his employees saying do you know how easy it would be to get one of my guns and kill you and how easy it would be to get rid of the body. In 1973, Gacy and one of his teenage employees traveled to Florida to view property that Gacy had purchased. On the very first night in Florida, Gacy raped him in their hotel room. After returning to Chicago, he drove to Gacy's house and beat him in his yard. Gacy told his wife that he had been attacked for refusing to pay him for poor quality work, which obviously was not true. In May of 1975, Gacy hired 15-year-old Anthony Antonucci. In July of 1975, Gacy went to Anthony's house. The two drank a bottle of wine, watched a completely heterosexual stag film, before Gacy wrestled Anthony to the floor and cuffed his hands behind his back. One cuff came loose, and Anthony freed his arm while Gacy was out of the room. When Gacy returned, Anthony attacked him. He wrestled Gacy to the floor, obtained possession of the handcuff key, and cuffed Gacy's hands behind his back. At first, Gacy threatened Anthony, and then he calmed down and promised to leave if he would remove the handcuffs. Anthony agreed, and Gacy left. After all of his crimes, Anthony later recalled that Gacy had told him, Not only are you the only one who got out of the cuffs, but you got them on me. On July 26, 1976, Gacy picked up 18-year-old David Cram as he was hitchhiking. Gacy offered him a job with PDM, and he began work the same evening. On August twenty-first, David Cram moved into his house. The next day, he and Gacy had several drinks to celebrate David's 19th birthday, and Gacy dressed as Poco the Clown. Gacy somehow conned David into putting on the handcuffs in front of his body. Gacy swung David around while he was holding on to the handcuffs, and then he told him that he intended to rape him. David kicked Gacy in the face and freed himself from the handcuffs. A month later, Gacy appeared at David's bedroom door and once again was intending to rape him, and he said, Dave, you really don't know who I am. Maybe it would be good if you give me what I want. David resisted once again, and Gacy left the bedroom stating, You ain't no fun. David soon moved out and left PDM, which I he should have. But he did still periodically work for Gacy over the next two years. Shortly after David moved out of Gacy's house, another 18-year-old employee, Michael Rossi, moved in. Rossi had worked for PDM contractors since May of 1976. And he lived with Gacy until April of 1977. Rossi occasionally assisted Gacy in clowning, Gacy's pogo and then Rossi's patches. Gacy eventually entered the local Chicago Democratic Party. And he would offer use of his employees to clean up party headquarters at no charge. He was actually rewarded for his community service with an appointment to serve on the Norwood Park Township Street Lighting Committee and he eventually earned the title of Precinct Captain. In 1975, Gacy was appointed the director of Chicago's annual Polish Constitution Day Parade, and he supervised this event from 1975 until 1978. Through his work with this parade, Gacy met and was photographed with First Lady Rosalind Carter on May 6, 1978. Of course, this event later became a huge embarrassment to the United States Secret Service because not only was his picture taken six years after his first murder, but it was taken seven months before his final arrest. Now let's get into the victims. Like I said, Gacy murdered at least 33 young men and buried 26 of them in the crawl space of his house. Gacy usually only killed one victim at a time, but on three occasions. Gacy had what he referred to as doubles, which is when he had two victims killed in the same evening. Usually what he would do was he would lure them to the house with a promise of getting a job with PDM. He would offer them drinks, drugs, or money in exchange for sex. His victims included not only people that he did know, but also random individuals that he found from Chicago's Greyhound bus station. Some victims he grabbed by force and others were just conned into believing Gacy. Sometimes he would pretend that he was a policeman to get people to get into his car. He literally had a stolen sheriff's badge and put spotlights on his black Oldsmobile. Once inside of the home, his usual game plan was to get them drunk or drugged and basically just try to get them to trust him. Guess he would then produce the handcuffs to show a magic trick he would say, which was sometimes part of his clown routine. He typically would cuff his own hands behind his back first and then release himself with the key that he had hid between his fingers. He then offered to show the victim how to release himself from the handcuffs. However, once his victim was handcuffed and unable to get free, Gacy made the statement, The trick is, you have to have the key. Gacy referred to the act of restraining his victim as the handcuff trick. Once his victim was restrained, he proceeded to rape and torture the victim. He would usually begin by sitting on their chest and forcing the victim to perform oral sex on him. He would then inflict acts of torture such as burning such as burning them with cigars and make them imitate a horse as he sat on their back and pulled makeshift reins around their necks, which was usually just like random things around the house. He would also violate them with foreign objects such as dildos or prescription bottles after he had sodomized his captive. Before torturing them, he would usually handcuff their ankles again. And these handcuffs were attached to a 2x4 to keep his legs in place. And these were actually inspired by the Houston mass murders, if you know what that is. A lot of his victims were forced to crawl into his bathroom where he would drown them and then revive them repeatedly. Literally just doing this over and over and over again. His typical murder plan was to put a rope around their neck and then tighten it with the hammer handle. This act was referred to as the rope trick, and he would usually and he would usually tell his victim, "This is the last trick before they died. Usually, his victim would literally sit there and choke for an hour or two before dying. and all of his victims, besides the last two, were murdered between three and 6 a.m. After death, Gacy usually stored their bodies under his bed for up to 24 hours before he would bury his victim in the crawl space. He would also periodically pour quicklime on their bodies to speed up the decomposition. Some of his victims' bodies were taken to his garage and embalmed before they were buried, which is something he learned in Las Vegas. Gacy's first known murder occurred on January 2, 1972. According to Gacy, Right after a family party, he decided to drive to the Civic Center to view a display of ice sculptures. And this is where he saw 16-year-old Timothy Jack McCoy. He got him to get into his car, and he learned that McCoy was traveling from Michigan to Nebraska. He was literally just passing through and was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Gacy took McCoy on a sightseeing tour of Chicago and then drove him to his home with the promise that he could spend the night and then he would drive him back to the bus station in time to catch his bus. Gacy claimed that he woke early the following morning to find McCoy standing in his bedroom doorway with a kitchen knife in his hand. He then jumped from his bed, and McCoy raised both arms in a gesture of surrender, tilting the knife upwards and accidentally cutting Gacy's forearm. Gacy twisted the knife from McCoy's wrist, banged his head against the bedroom wall, kicked him against his wardrobe, and walked towards him. McCoy then kicked Gacy in the stomach, doubling him over. Gacy grabbed McCoy, wrestled him to the floor, and stabbed him repeatedly in the chest as he sat on him. As McCoy lay there, literally dying, Gacy claimed that he washed the knife in his bathroom, then went to his kitchen and saw an unopened carton of eggs and a slab of unsliced bacon on his kitchen table. McCoy had also set the table for two. He had literally walked into Gacy's room to wake him up for breakfast and didn't realize that he was still carrying the knife in his hand. Gacy buried McCoy in his crawlspace and later covered his grave with a layer of concrete. In an interview that took place several years after he was arrested, Gacy said that immediately after killing McCoy, he felt totally drained. But he also said that as he stabbed McCoy and listened to him gasping for air and gurgling on his blood, he experienced a mind-numbing orgasm, and this is when he realized that death was the ultimate thrill. And I quote that, Gacy's second murder took place around January of 1974. This victim has still not been identified. Gacy tells us all from his own account, so there's no way to even know if this is what happened, but he says that he strangled him and then placed the body in his closet before burial. He later stated that bodily fluids leaked from the victim's mouth and nose, which stained his carpet. As a result, he, he began stuffing cloth rags or the victim's own underwear in the mouth of victims to prevent this leakage from occurring again. On July 31st, 1975, an 18-year-old employee of Gacy by the name of John Bukovich disappeared. Bukovich's car was found parked near the corner of Sheridan and Lawrence with his jacket and wallet inside and the keys were still in the ignition. The day before he disappeared, Bukovich had confronted Gacy over two weeks of back pay that he had not received. Bukovich's father called Gacy who claimed that he was happy to help search for his son but was sorry that Bukovic had run away. When questioned by police, Gacy said that Bukovich and two friends had arrived at his house demanding the overdue pay and they had reached a compromise, but all three of them had left. Over the following three years, Bukovic's parents called police more than a hundred times, begging them to investigate Gacy. They knew that something was up with this man. Gacy finally admitted that he encountered Bukovic exiting his car at the corner of West Lawrence Avenue and was waving him to attract his attention. According to Gacy, Bukovic approached his car stating, I want to talk. Gacy invited Bukovic back into his car and then into his home, pretty much to settle the issue of his overdue wages. However, at Gacy's home, Gacy offered Bukovic a drink and then conned him into allowing his wrist to be cuffed behind his back. Gacy later confessed to having sat on the kid's chest for a while before he strangled him. He kept Bukovic's body in his garage and intended to bury the body later in the crawl space. However, his wife and stepdaughters returned home earlier than he expected, so Gacy buried Bukovich's body under the concrete floor of the garage. In addition to being the year that his business finally started to pick up, Gacy says that 1975 was the year when he began to increase the frequency of searching, of seeking out sex with young men. He referred to this year as his cruising year. Gacy committed most of his murders between 1976 and 1978, which is because he lived alone after his divorce. He had so much more freedom. And although he remained civic-minded, several neighbors did notice erratic changes in his behavior after his divorce. They noticed him keeping company with young men, which was unlike him and super weird in general. And they would hear his car leave and come home in the early hours of the morning, or they would see lights in his home switch on and off in the early hours. One neighbor recalled that for several years, she was woken up by the sounds of muffled, high-pitched screaming and crying. And she identified these sounds as coming from a house adjacent to hers on Somerdale Avenue, which belonged to Gacy. Just a month after his divorce was finalized in 1976, Gacy abducted and murdered the 18-year-old Daryl Sampson. Daryl was last seen alive in Chicago on April 6, 1976. Gacy buried his body under the dining room floor with a section of cloth lodged in his throat. Five weeks later, on the afternoon of may fourteenth, fifteen year old Randall Reffitt disappeared while walking home from Sin High School. Just hours after Gacy abducted Reffitt, fourteen year old Samuel Stapleton vanished as he was walking home from his sister's apartment. They were buried together in the crawl space, and investigators believe that both of them were murdered on the same evening. On june third, Gacy killed a seventeen year old by the name of Michael Bonin. He disappeared while traveling from Chicago to walk again which is also in Illinois, in case you didn't know. Gacy strangled Michael with a ligature and buried him under the spare bedroom. Ten days later, Gacy murdered a 16-year-old by the name of William Carroll and buried him in a common grave in the crawl space. Carroll seems to have been the first of four victims that were known to have been murdered between June 13th and August 6th. Three of them be- were between 16 and 17, and one identified victim appears to have been an adult. On August 5th, a 16-year-old named James Hackinson of Minnesota was last known to have phoned his family. Gacy murdered and buried him in the crawlspace between the body of a 17-year-old young man named Rick Johnston, who was last seen alive on August 6th. Gacy is also thought to have murdered two other unidentified males between August and October of 1976. On October 24th, Gacy abducted and killed the teenage friends Kenneth Parker and Michael Marino. These two were last seen outside of a restaurant on Clark Street in Chicago. Two days later, a 19-year-old construction worker, William Bundy, disappeared after informing his family that he was supposed to attend a party. Bundy died of suffocation, and Gacy buried his body beneath the master bedroom in his house. He had actually worked for Gacy at PDM. In December of 1976, another PDM employee, 17-year-old Gregory Godzik disappeared. His girlfriend last saw him outside of her house after he had driven her home after they went on a date. Godzik had worked for PDM for only three weeks before he disappeared. He had informed his family that Gacy had him dig trenches for some kind of drain tiles in the crawl space. Godzik's car was later found abandoned in Niles, which is also in Illinois. His parents and older sister, Eugenia, contacted Gacy about Godzik's appearance. Gacy claimed that he had run away from home and indicated to Gacy before that he had wished to do so. Gacy also claimed that he received a voicemail from Godzik shortly after he had disappeared. When asked if he could play the message to Godzik's parents, he just lied and said that he had erased it. On January twentieth, 1977, Gacy lured the 19-year-old John Sick to his house on the pretext of buying his Plymouth satellite. He later confessed to strangling Sick and his spirit- in his spare bedroom, claiming Rossi was asleep in the house the following morning. Gacy later sold the car to Rossi for $300. Between December of 1976 and March of 1977, Gacy killed an unidentified adult male. He buried him in the crawl space beneath the body of a 20-year-old Michigan native, John Prestige, who had disappeared on March 15th. Shortly before his disappearance, Prestige had mentioned he had obtained work with a local contractor, who would have been Gacy. Gacy murdered one additional unidentified young man and buried him in the crawl space in the spring or early summer of 1977. The exact time was unknown because he did not admit to any details of this murder. However, on July 5th, Gacy killed a 19-year-old from Crystal Lake, Illinois by the name of Matthew Bowman. Bowman's, last, Bowman's mother last saw him at a train station in the suburbs. The following month, Rossi was arrested for stealing gasoline while driving John six car. The gas station attendant noted the license plate and the police traced the car to Gacy's house. When questioned, Gacy told police officers that Sick had sold the car to him in February, saying that he needed money to leave town. A check of the VIN number confirmed that the car did belong to Sick. The police did not pursue the matter further, but they did inform Sick's mother that her son had sold his car. By the end of 1977, it is known that Gacy murdered six more young men between the ages of 16 and 21. The first of these victims was 18-year-old Robert Gilroy, the son of a Chicago police sergeant, and he was last seen alive on September 15th. Gilroy lived only four blocks away from Gacy, and he was also murdered and buried in the crawlspace. On September 12th, Gacy flew to Pittsburgh to supervise a remodeling project of PDM, and he did not return to Chicago until a few days later on September 16th. Because Gacy was in another state at the time that Gilroy went missing, police believe that that he was assisted in his murders and Gacy has actually claimed that this is true but they have no idea who could have helped him they have no evidence of anything to pan on anyone else 10 days after Gilroy's last seen, 19 year old and former U.S. Marine John Mowry disappeared after leaving his mother's house to walk home to his apartment Gacy strangled Mowry and buried his body beneath the master bedroom in his house On October 17th, a 21-year-old named Russell Nelson from Minnesota disappeared. He was last seen outside of a bar in Chicago. Nelson was looking for contract work. That's why he was in Chicago. Gacy murdered him and buried him beneath the guest bedroom. Not even four weeks later, Gacy murdered 16-year-old Robert Winch and buried him in the crawlspace. On November 18th, 20-year-old Tommy Bowling disappeared after leaving a Chicago bar. And he was a father of a child when he went missing. Three weeks after the murder of Tommy Bowling, on December 9th, 19-year-old U.S. Marine David Tausma disappeared after telling his mom that he was going to a rock concert in Hammond. Gacy strangled Tausma with a ligature and buried him in the crawlspace, close to the body of John Mowry. On December 30th, Gacy abducted 19-year-old Robert Donnelly from a Chicago bus stop. At gunpoint, by the way. So his claims of having a gun were true. Gacy drove him to his home where he raped, tortured, and repeatedly drunk, repeatedly dunked Robert's head into a bathtub until he passed out. Gacy teased him the entire time, saying like, saying things like, aren't we playing fun games tonight? Robert later testified at Gacy's trial that he was in so much pain that he asked Gacy to kill him. Gacy replied, I'm getting around to it. After several hours, Gacy released Robert and drove him to his workplace, warning him that if he he complained to the police, they would not believe him. Robert did report this to the police thank god. And on January 6, 1978, they questioned Gacy. Gacy admitted to having a sex slave relationship with Robert and he insisted everything was consensual, but he added that he did not pay him the money he promised him and that's why he complained. The police believed Gacy and filed no charges against him. Jim Kindred, who disappeared on February 16th after telling his fiancee, Gacy joined a membership at a club by the name of the Moose Club. At this club, he became aware of a Jolly Joker clown club, and the members of this club would perform at fundraisers and parades, and then they would volunteer at children's hospitals dressed as clowns. In late 1975, Gacy joined and created his own clown characters, Pogo the Clown and Patches the Clown. He described Pogo as a happy clown, whereas Patches was a more serious character. You can only imagine. Gacy never really made money off of these performances. He did this because he believed that acting as a clown allowed him to go back to his childhood. He performed as both Pogo and Patches at at numerous local parties, political functions, charities, and children's hospitals. Occasionally, Gacy would remain in his clown costume after performance and would go for a drink at a local bar before turning home. Because of all of this public service as a clown throughout the years, while he was murdering these kids is why he's known as the killer clown. His employees at PDM consisted of a lot of high school students and young men. Gacy would often proposition his workers for sex, or he would insist on sexual favors in return for acts such as lending vehicles to his employees. He also claimed to own guns, and he would threaten his employees, saying, Do you know how easy it would be to get one of my guns and kill you, and how easy it would be to get rid of the body? In 1973, Gacy and one of his teenage employees traveled to Florida to view property that Gacy had purchased. On the very first night in Florida, Gacy raped him in their hotel room. After returning to Chicago, he drove to Gacy's house and beat him in his yard. Gacy told his wife that he had been attacked for refusing to pay him for poor quality work, which obviously was not true. In May of 1975, Gacy hired 15-year-old Anthony Antonucci. In July of 1975, Gacy went to Anthony's house. The two drank a bottle of wine, watched a completely heterosexual stag film, before Gacy wrestled Anthony to the floor and cuffed his hands behind his back. One cuff came loose, and Anthony freed his arm while Gacy was out of the room. When Gacy returned, Anthony attacked him. He wrestled Gacy to the floor, obtained possession of the handcuff key, and cuffed Gacy's hands behind his back. At first, Gacy threatened Anthony, and then he calmed down and promised to leave if he would remove the handcuffs. Anthony agreed, and Gacy left. After all of his crimes, Anthony later recalled that Gacy had told him, Not only are you the only one who got out of the cuffs, but you got them on me. On July 26, 1976, Gacy picked up 18-year-old David Cram as he was hitchhiking. Gacy offered him a job with PDM, and he began work the same evening. On August 21st, David Cram moved into his house. The next day, he and Gacy had several drinks to celebrate David's 19th birthday, and Gacy dressed as Pogo the Clown. Gacy somehow conned David into putting on the handcuffs in front of his body. Gacy swung David around while he was holding on to the handcuffs, and then he told him that he intended to rape him. David kicked Gacy in the face and freed himself from the handcuffs. A month later, Gacy appeared at David's bedroom door and once again was intending to rape him, and he said, Dave, you really don't know who I am. Maybe it would be good if you give me what I want. David resisted once again, and... Gacy left the bedroom stating, you ain't no fun. David soon moved out and left PDM, which I he should have. But he did still periodically work for Gacy over the next two years. Shortly after David moved out of Gacy's house, another 18-year-old employee, Michael Rossi, moved in. Rossi had worked for PDM Contractors since May of 1976. And he lived with Gacy until April of 1977. Rossi occasionally assisted Gacy in clowning. Gacy's pogo and then Rossi's patches. Gacy eventually entered the local Chicago Democratic Party. And he would offer use of his employees to clean up party headquarters at no charge. He was actually rewarded for his community service with an appointment to serve on the Norwood Park Township Street Lighting Committee and he eventually earned the title of Precinct Captain. In 1975, Gacy was appointed the director of Chicago's annual Polish Constitution Day Parade, and he supervised this event from 1975 until 1978. Through his work with this parade, Gacy met and was photographed with First Lady Rosalind Carter on May 6, 1978. Of course, this event later became a huge embarrassment to the United States Secret Service, Because not only was his picture taken six years after his first murder, but it was taken seven months before his final arrest. Now, let's get into the victims. Like I said, Gacy murdered at least 33 young men and buried 26 of them in the crawlspace of his house. Gacy usually only killed one victim at a time, but on three occasions... Gacy had what he referred to as doubles, which is when he had two victims killed in the same evening. Usually what he would do was he would lure them to the house with a promise of getting a job with PDM. He would offer them drinks, drugs, or money in exchange for sex. His victims included not only people that he did know, but also random individuals that he found from Chicago's Greyhound bus station. Some victims he grabbed by force and others were just conned into believing Gacy. Sometimes he would pretend that he was a policeman to get people to get into his car. He literally had a stolen sheriff's badge and put spotlights on his black Oldsmobile. Once inside of the home, his usual game plan was to get them drunk or drugged and basically just try to get them to trust him. Gacy would then produce the handcuffs to show a magic trick, he would say, which was sometimes part of his clown routine. He typically would cuff his own hands behind his back first and then release himself with the key that he had hid between his fingers. He then offered to show the victim how to release himself from the handcuffs. However, once his victim was handcuffed and unable to get free, Gacy made the statement, The trick is, you have to have the key. Gacy referred to the act of restraining his victim as the handcuff trick. Once his victim was restrained, he proceeded to rape and torture the victim. He would usually begin by sitting on their chest and forcing the victim to perform oral sex on him. He would then inflict acts of torture such as burning, such as burning them with cigars, and make them imitate a horse as he sat on their back and pulled makeshift reins around their necks, which was usually just like random things around the house. He would also violate them with foreign objects such as dildos or prescription bottles after he had sodomized his captive. Before torturing them, he would usually handcuff their ankles again. And these handcuffs were attached to a two by four to keep his legs in place and these were actually inspired by the Houston mass murders, if you know what that is. A lot of his victims were forced to crawl into his bathroom where he would drown them and then revive them repeatedly. Literally just doing this over and over and over again. His typical murder plan was to put a rope around their neck and then tighten it with the hammer handle. This act was referred to as the rope trick and he would usually and he would usually tell his victim this is the last trick before they died usually his victim would literally sit there and choke for an hour or two before dying All of his victims, besides the last two, were murdered between 3 and 6 a.m. After death, Gacy usually stored their bodies under his bed for up to 24 hours before he would bury his victim in the crawl space. He would also periodically pour quicklime on their bodies to speed up the decomposition. Some of his victims' bodies were taken to his garage and embalmed before they were buried, which is something he learned in Las Vegas. Gacy's first known murder occurred on January 2, 1972. According to Gacy, right after a family party, he decided to drive to the Civic Center to view a display of ice sculptures. And this is where he saw 16-year-old Timothy Jack McCoy. He got him to get into his car, and he learned that McCoy was traveling from Michigan to Nebraska. He was literally just passing through and was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Gacy took McCoy on a sightseeing tour of Chicago and then drove him to his home with the promise that he could spend the night and then he would drive him back to the bus station in time to catch his bus. Gacy claimed that he woke early the following morning to find McCoy standing in his bedroom doorway with a kitchen knife in his hand. He then jumped from his bed and McCoy raised both arms in in a gesture of surrender, tilting the knife upwards and accidentally cutting Gacy's forearm. Gacy twisted the knife from McCoy's wrist, banged his head against the bedroom wall, kicked him against his wardrobe, and walked towards him. McCoy then kicked Gacy in the stomach, doubling him over. Gacy grabbed McCoy, wrestled him to the floor, and stabbed him repeatedly in the chest as he sat on him. As McCoy lay there, literally dying, Gacy claimed that he washed the knife in his bathroom, then went to his kitchen and saw an unopened carton of eggs and a slab of unsliced bacon on his kitchen table. McCoy had also set the table for two. He had literally walked into Gacy's room to wake him up for breakfast and didn't realize that he was still carrying the knife in his hand. Gacy buried McCoy in his crawlspace and later covered his grave with a layer of concrete. In an interview that took place several years after he was arrested. Gacy said that immediately after killing McCoy, he felt totally drained. But he also said that as he stabbed McCoy and listened to him gasping for air and gurgling on his blood, he experienced a mind-numbing orgasm. And this is when he realized that death was the ultimate thrill. And I quote that. Gacy's second murder took place around January of 1974. This victim has still not been identified. Gacy tells us all from his own account, so there's no way to even know if this is what happened, but he says that he strangled him and then placed the body in his closet before burial. He later stated, that bodily fluids leaked from the victim's mouth and nose, which stained his carpet. As a result, he began stuffing clo- he began stuffing cloth rags or the victim's own underwear in the mouths of victims, to prevent this leakage from occurring again. On July thirty first, nineteen seventy five, an eighteen year old employee of Gacy by the name of John Bukovich, disappeared. Bukovich's car was found parked near the corner of Sheridan and Lawrence with his jacket and wallet inside, and the keys were still in the ignition. The day before he disappeared, Bukovich had confronted Gacy over two weeks of back pay that he had not received. Bukovitch's father called Gacy, who claimed that he was happy to help search for his son, but was sorry that Bukovich had run away. When questioned by police, Gacy said that Bukovich and two friends had arrived at his house demanding the overdue pay, and they had reached a compromise, but all three of them had left. Over the following three years, Bukovich's parents called police more than a hundred times, begging them to investigate Gacy. They knew that something was up with this man. Gacy finally admitted that he encountered Bukovitch exiting his car at the corner of West Lawrence Avenue and was waving him to attract his attention. According to Gacy, Bukovich approached his car stating, I want to talk. Gacy invited Bukovitch back into his car and then into his home, pretty much to settle the issue of his overdue wages. However, at Gacy's home, Gacy offered Bukovitch a drink and then conned him into allowing his wrist. To be cuffed behind his back. Gacy later confessed to having sat on the kid's chest for a while before he strangled him. He kept Bukovic's body in his garage and intended to bury the body later in the crawl space. However, his wife and stepdaughters returned home earlier than he expected, so Gacy buried Bukovic's body under the concrete floor of the garage. In addition to being the year that his business finally started to pick up, Gacy says that 1975 was the year when he began to increase the frequency of searching, of seeking out sex with young men. He referred to this year as his cruising cure. Gacy committed most of his murders between 1976 and 1978, which is because he lived alone after his divorce. He had so much more freedom. And although he remained civic-minded, several neighbors did notice erratic changes in his behavior after his divorce. They noticed him keeping company with young men, which was unlike him and super weird in general. And they would hear his car... Leave and come home in the early hours of the morning, or they would see lights in his home switch on and off in the early hours. One neighbor recalled that for several years she was woken up by the sounds of muffled, high pitched screaming and crying and she identified these sounds as coming from a house adjacent to hers on Summerdale Avenue, which belonged to Gacy. Just a month after his divorce was finalized in 1976, Gacy abducted and murdered the 18-year-old Daryl Sampson. Daryl was last seen alive in Chicago on April 6, 1976. Gacy buried his body under the dining room floor with a section of cloth lodged in his throat. Five weeks later, on the afternoon of May 14th, 15-year-old Randall Reffitt disappeared while walking home from Sin High School. Just hours after Gacy abducted Ruffit, 14-year-old Samuel Stapleton vanished as he was walking home from his sister's apartment. They were buried together in the crawlspace, and investigators believe that both of them were murdered on the same evening. On June 3rd, Gacy killed a 17-year-old by the name of Michael Bonin. He disappeared while traveling from Chicago to walk again, which is also in Illinois, in case you didn't know. Gacy strangled Michael with a ligature and buried him under the spare bedroom. Ten days later, Gacy murdered a 16-year-old by the name of William Carroll and buried him in a common grave in the crawl space. Carroll seems to have been the first of four victims that were known to have been murdered between June 13th and August 6th. Three of them be- were between 16 and 17, and one identified victim appears to have been an adult. On August 5th, a 16-year-old named James Hackinson of Minnesota was last known to have phoned his family. Gacy murdered and buried him in the crawlspace between the body of a 17-year-old young man named Rick Johnston, who was last seen alive on August 6th. Gacy is also thought to have murdered two other unidentified males between August and October of 1976. On October 24th, Gacy abducted and killed the teenage friends Kenneth Parker and Michael Marino. These two were last seen outside of a restaurant on Clark Street in Chicago. Two days later, a 19-year-old construction worker, William Bundy, disappeared after informing his family that he was supposed to attend a party. Bundy died of suffocation and Gacy buried his body beneath the master bedroom in his house. He had actually worked for Gacy at PDM. In December of 1976, another PDM employee, 17-year-old Gregory Godzik, disappeared. His girlfriend last saw him outside of her house after he had driven her home after they went on a date. Godzik had worked for PDM for only three weeks before he disappeared. He had informed his family that Gacy had him dig trenches for some kind of drain tiles in the crawlspace. Godzik's car was later found abandoned in Niles, which... Is also in Illinois. His parents and older sister Eugenia contacted Gacy about Godzik's appearance. Gacy claimed that he had run away from home and indicated to Gacy before that he had wished to do so. Gacy also claimed that he received a voicemail from Godzik shortly after he had disappeared. When asked if he could play the message to Godzik's parents, he just lied and said that he had erased it. On January 20, 1977, Gacy lured the 19-year-old John Sick to his house on the pretext of buying his Plymouth satellite. He later confessed to strangling Sick in his spare bedroom, claiming Rossi was asleep in the house the following morning. Gacy later sold the car to Rossi for $300. Between December of 1976 and March of 1977, Gacy killed an unidentified adult male. He buried him in the crawlspace beneath the body of a 20-year-old Michigan native, John Prestige, who had disappeared on March 15th. Shortly before his disappearance, Prestige had mentioned he had obtained work with a local contractor, who would have been Gacy. Gacy murdered one additional unidentified young man and buried him in the crawlspace in the spring or early summer of 1977. The exact time was unknown because he did not admit to any details of this murder. However, on July 5th, Gacy, til- Gacy killed a 19-year-old from Crystal Lake, Illinois, by the name of Matthew Bowman. Bowman's, last- Bowman's mother last saw him at a train station in the suburbs. The following month, Rossi was arrested for stealing gasoline while driving John six car. The gas station attendant noted the license plate and the police traced the car to Gacy's house. When questioned, Gacy told police officers that Sick had sold the car to him in February, saying that he needed money to leave town. A check of the VIN number confirmed that the car did belong to Sick. The police did not pursue the matter further, but they did inform Sick's mother that her son had sold his car. By the end of 1977, it is known that Gacy murdered six more young men between the ages of sixteen and twenty one. The first of these victims was eighteen year old Robert Gilroy, the son of a Chicago police sergeant, and he was last seen alive on september fifteenth. Gilroy lived only four blocks away from Gacy, and he was also murdered and buried in the crawl space. On september twelfth, Gacy flew to Pittsburgh to supervise a remodeling project of PDM. And he did not return to Chicago until a few days later on September 16th. Because Gacy was in another state at the time that Gilroy went missing, police believe that he was assisted in his murders. And Gacy has actually claimed that this is true. But they have no idea who could have helped him. They have no evidence of anything To pan on anyone else. Ten days after Gilroy was last seen, nineteen-year-old and former U.S. Marine John Mowry disappeared after leaving his mother's house to walk home to his apartment. Casey strangled Mowry and buried his body beneath the master bedroom in his house. On October seventeenth, a twenty-one-year-old named Russell Nelson from Minnesota disappeared. He was last seen outside of a bar in Chicago. Nelson was looking for contract work. That's why he was in Chicago. Gacy murdered him and buried him beneath the guest bedroom. Not even four weeks later, Gacy murdered 16-year-old Robert Winch, who was also from Michigan, and buried him in the crawlspace. On November 18th, 20-year-old Tommy Bowling disappeared after leaving a Chicago bar and he was a father of a child when he went missing. Three weeks after the murder of Tommy Bowling on December 9th, 19-year-old U.S. Marine David Tausma disappeared after telling his mom that he was going to a rock concert in Hammond. Gacy strangled Tausma with a ligature and buried him in the crawlspace, close to the body of John Mowry. On December 30th, Gacy abducted nineteen-year-old Robert Donnelly from a Chicago bus stop at gunpoint. By the way, so his claims of having a gun were true. Gacy drove him to ho- his home, where he raped, tortured, and repeatedly drunk, repeatedly dunked Robert's head into a bathtub until he passed out. Gacy teased him the entire time, saying like saying things like, aren't we playing fun games tonight? Robert later testified at Gacy's trial that he was in so much pain that he asked Gacy to kill him. Gacy replied, I'm getting around to it. After several hours, Gacy released Robert and drove him to his workplace, warning him that if he he complained to the police, they would not believe him. Robert did report this to the police, thank God, and on January 6, 1978, they questioned Gacy. Gacy admitted to having a sex slave relationship with Robert, and he insisted everything was consensual, but he added that he did not pay him the money he promised him, and that's why he complained. The police believed Gacy and filed no charges against him. The following month, Gacy killed nineteen-year-old William Kindred, who disappeared on February sixteenth after telling his fiance. The following month, Gacy killed nineteen-year-old William Kindred, who disappeared on February sixteenth after telling his fiance that he was spending the night in a bar hanging out. Kindred's fiance knew Gacy, and he was actually the final victim that Gacy buried in the crawl space. On March twenty-first, Gacy lured twenty-six-year-old Jeffrey R- Rignall into his car. Shortly after Rignall entered the car, Gacy chloroformed him and drove him to his house, where his arms and head were restrained in a pillory device, which was attached to the ceiling. Gacy raped and tortured Rignall with various instruments, including lit candles and whips, and he would repeatedly chloroformed him into unconsciousness. Gacy then drove Rignall to Chicago's Lincoln Park, where he was dumped unconscious by Gacy. When Rignall was dumped in Lincoln Park, he was still alive. He actually managed to stagger to his girlfriend's apartment, and police were informed of the assault, but they did not investigate Gacy. Rignall was able to recall, though, the Oldsmobile. He also recalled going down the Kennedy Expressway and two particular side streets. He and two friends staked out the Cumberland exit of the expressway, and in April, Rignall finally saw the Oldsmobile, which he and his friends followed to 8213 West Somerdale Street. Police obtained an arrest warrant and Gacy was finally arrested on July 15th. He faced trial for battery against Rignall. By 1978, the crawlspace had no room for more bodies. Gacy later confessed to police that he considered stowing the bodies in his attic initially, initially, but he had been worried about complications arising from the leakage of the bodily fluids. Therefore, he chose to dispose of his victims off the I-55 bridge into the Des Plaines River. Gacy stated he had thrown five bodies into a river in 1978. He believed one had landed on a passing barge and only four bodies were ever found. The first known victim thrown from the I-55 bridge into the Des Plaines River was 20-year-old Timothy O'Rourke. Gacy killed him in mid-June after he had left his Dover Street apartment to purchase cigarettes. Shortly before his disappearance, he had told his roommate that a contractor on the northwest side of Chicago had offered him a job. On November 4th, Gacy killed 19-year-old Frank Landigan. His naked body was found in the Des Plaines River on November 12th. On November 24th, a 20-year-old Elmwood Park resident James Mazzara disappeared after sharing Thanksgiving dinner with his family. He had informed his sister that he was working in the construction industry and that he was doing all right. He was last seen alive walking in the direction of Buckhouse Square, carrying a suitcase. On the afternoon of december eleventh, nineteen seventy eight, Gacy visited the Neeson Pharmacy in Displains to discuss a potential remodeling deal with the store owner, Phil Torf. He was within earshot. A fifteen-year-old part-time employee, Robert Peast, and Gacy mentioned his firm often hired teenage boys at a starting wage of five dollars per hour, which was almost double the pay that Robert earned at the pharmacy. Shortly after Gacy left the pharmacy, Robert's mother arrived at the store to drive her son home so that they could celebrate her birthday together. Robert asked his mother to wait and said that some contractor wants to talk to me about a job. He left the store at 9 p.m. and promised to return shortly. Robert was murdered shortly after 10 p.m. at Gacy's house. Gacy stated later that at his house, he asked Robert whether there was anything he wouldn't do for the right price, to which Robert replied that he did not mind working hard. In response, Gacy stated good money could be earned by hustling, although Robert was dismissive. Gacy then somehow conned Robert into putting on the handcuffs and said, I'm going to rape you and you can't do anything about it, as Robert began crying. He also stated that as he placed a tourniquet around Robert's neck, the boy was crying, scared. Gacy admitted to having received a phone call from a business acquaintance as Robert was dying, suffocating on his bedroom floor. After Robert failed to return, his family filed a missing persons report with the Des Police. Torf, the manager of the drugstore, named Gacy as the contractor that Robert had most likely left the store to talk to about a job. Lt. Joseph Kozenzik, whose son attended Main West High School like Robert, chose to investigate Ro- chose to investigate Gacy further. After speaking with Robert's mother on the morning of December 12th, Lt. Joseph became convinced that Robert had not run away from home. They did a routine check of Gacy's criminal background and they revealed that he had an outstanding battery charged against him in Chicago and had served a prison sentence in Iowa for the sodomy of a 15-year-old boy. The lieutenant and two displaced officers visited Gacy at his home the following evening. Gacy indicated he had seen two young men working at the pharmacy and that he had asked one of them, who he believed to be Robert, whether there were any remodeling materials behind the store. He was adamant, however, that he had not offered Robert a job and he had only returned to the pharmacy shortly after 8 p.m. as he had left his appointment book at the store. Gacy promised to come to the station later that evening to make a statement to confirm all of this and he said that he was unable to do so at that moment because his uncle had just died. When questioned as to how soon he could come to the police station, he responded, You guys are very rude. Don't you have any respect for the dead? At 3.20 a.m., Gacy arrived at the police station covered in mud and claimed that he had been involved in a car accident. On returning to the police station later that day, Gacy denied any involvement in Robert's disappearance and repeated that he had not offered him a job. When asked why he had returned to the pharmacy, Gacy once again said that he had done so in response to a phone call from Torf informing him that he had left his appointment book at the store. Detectives had already spoken with Torf, however, and he denied calling Gacy because he fucking didn't, and at the request of detectives, Gacy prepared a written statement detailing his movements on December 11th. They obviously suspected that Gacy might still be holding Robert against his will, so the Des Plaines police obtained a warrant to search Gacy's house on December 13th. This search of Gacy's property revealed several suspicious items, including several police badges and a 6 millimeter pistol inside an office drawer, a syringe and a hypodermic needle inside a cabinet, handcuffs, books on homosexuality, and seven pornographic films. They also found capsules of amyl nitrite, an 18-inch dildo, and a 39-inch 2x4 with two holes drilled, drilled into each end. Bottles of Valium and several driver's licenses were found in the northwest bedroom. A blue hooded parka was found atop a toolbox inside the laundry room. An underwear too small to fit Gacy was located inside a bathroom closet. In the northwest bedroom, investigators found a class of 1975 Main West High School ring engraved with the initials J-A-S. Investigators also recovered a Neeson Pharmacy photo receipt from a trash can alongside a 36-inch section of nylon rope. The Des Police confiscated Gacy's Oldsmobile and other PDM work vehicles. Police assigned two... Two men surveillance teams to monitor Gacy on a rotational 12-hour basis, and they continue their investigation. These surveillance teams consisted of officers Mike Albright and David Hackmeister, Ronald Robinson, and Robert Schultz. The following day, investigators received a phone call from Michael Rossi, who informed the investigators of Gregory Godzik's disappearance and the fact that another PDM employee, Charles Hatula, had been found drowned in Illinois River earlier that year. On December 15th, this plane's investigators obtained further details of Gacy's battery charge, learning that the complainant, Jeffrey Rignall, had reported that Gacy had lured him into his car, then chloroformed, raped, and tortured him before dumping him with severe chest and facial burns and rectal bleeding in Lincoln Park. In an interview with Gacy's former wife, this Same day, they learned of the disappearance of John Buckovich. Also the same day, the Main West High School ring was traced to John Allen Sick. An interview with Sick's mother revealed that several items from her son's apartment were also missing, including a Motorola TV set. By December 16th, Gacy was pretty much just trying to throw off the surveillance detectives. He would invite them to join him for meals in restaurants and for drinks in bars or inside of his house. He repeatedly denied that he had anything to do with Roberts' disappearance and accused the officers of harassing him because of his political connections or recreational drug use. So he taunted them by literally just breaking traffic laws and would lose his pursuers on more than one occasion because, I mean, he knew he was not going to be arrested for this. This is not what they were here for. This afternoon, David Cram consented to a police interview, and this is where he described Gacy's workaholic lifestyle and his open-minded attitude regarding sex between men. Cram also said on one occasion, because of his poor timekeeping, Gacy had given him a watch and explained that he got it from a dead person. Investigators conducted a formal interview of Rossi on December 17th. He informed them that Gacy had sold six vehicle to him and explained that he had bought the car from sick because he needed money to move to California. After this, the police further examined Gacy's mobile. In the course of examining the trunk of the car, investigators discovered a small cluster of fibers which they believed to have been human hair. This same evening, officers conducted a test using three trained German Shepherd search dogs to determine whether Robert had been present in any of Gacy's vehicles. One dog approached Gacy's automobile and lay on the passenger seat, in which the dog's handler informed investigators was a reaction to death, indicating that Robert's body had been present in the vehicle. That evening, Gacy invited two detectives to a restaurant for a meal. In the early hours of December 18th, he invited them into another restaurant, and over breakfast he talked of his business, marriages, and pretty much his activities as a clown. At one point during the conversation, Gacy said, You know, clowns can get away with murder. By December 18th, Gacy was obviously beginning to show signs of being stressed out. He was unshaven, looking tired, and he appeared super anxious and was drinking heavily. That same afternoon, he drove to his lawyer's office to a a $750,000 civil suit against the Des Plaines police, demanding that they th- cease their surveillance same day, the serial number of the Neeson Pharmacy photo receipt found in Gacy's kitchen was traced to 17-year-old Kim Byers, who was a colleague of Robert at the Neeson Pharmacy. Byers admitted that when contacted in person the following day, that she had worn that same jacket on December 11th to shield herself from the cold. This receipt was placed in the pocket of that jacket, and she gave the coat to Robert as he left the store, which is when he was claiming that a contractor wanted to speak with him. This uncovering of evidence completely contradicted his previous statement that he had no contact with Robert on the evening of December 11th. So this was a huge step in this case. On that same evening, Rossi was interviewed again. On this occasion, he was much more cooperative, and he informed informed detectives that in the summer of 1977, at Gacy's request, he had spread 10 bags of lime in the crawlspace of Gacy's house. On December 19th, the next day, investigators began compiling evidence for a second search warrant for Gacy's house. On this day, Gacy's lawyers filed the civil suit against the Des Plaines Police. The hearing for the suit was scheduled for December 22nd. This afternoon, Gacy invited the surveillance detectives inside his house once again. On this occasion, as Officer Robinson distracted Gacy with bullshit conversation, Officer Schultz walked into Gacy's bedroom in an unsuccessful attempt to write down the serial number of the Motorola TV they suspected that belonged to John Sick. While flushing Gacy's toilet, the officer noticed a smell that he suspected could be that of rotting corpses coming from a heating duct. The officers who had searched Gacy's house previously had failed to notice this because the house had been cold. Investigators interviewed both David Cram and Rossi once again on December 20th. Rossi had agreed to be interviewed in relation to his possible links with John Sick as well as to the disappearance of Robert. When questioned by investigators as to where he believed Gacy had concealed Robert's body, Rossi replied that Gacy may have placed the body in the crawl space. And this is when he brought up that he believed Sick's car could have been stolen. Rossi agreed to submit a holograph test. He denied any involvement in Robert P's disappearance also denying any knowledge of his whereabouts. He soon refused to continue the questioning, and Rossi's erratic and inconsistent responses to questions while attached to the polygraph machine pretty much made them impossible to get a definite opinion on the truthfulness of his answers. Rossi did, however, further discuss the trench digging that he did in the crawlspace and remarked on Gacy's insistence that he do not deviate from where he was instructed to dig. David Cram informed investigators of Gacy's attempts to rape him in 1976. He stated that after he and Gacy had returned to his home after the December 13th search of his property, Gacy had turned pale after seeing a clot of mud on his carpet where he suspected it had come from the crawlspace. David Cram said Gacy had grabbed a flashlight and immediately entered the crawlspace to look for evidence of digging. When asked whether he had been to the crawlspace, Cram replied he had once been asked by Gacy to spread lime down there, and had also dug trenches for Gacy, which he had explained were for drainage pipes at the time. Cram stated these trenches were two feet wide, six feet long, and two feet deep, which was about the size of a grave. On the evening of December 20th, Gacy drove to his lawyer's office in Park Ridge to attend a scheduled meeting, pretty much to discuss the progress of his civil suit. On his arrival, Gacy appeared completely just untidy and tired, and he immediately asked for an alcoholic drink. His lawyer fetched him a bottle of whiskey from his car, and on his return, he asked Gacy what he had to discuss with him. Gacy picked up a copy of the Daily Herald from the desk, pointed to a front-page article which was covering the disappearance of Robert Peast, and said, This boy is dead. He's in a river. Gacy then proceeded to give a rambling confession that ran into the early hours of the following morning. He began by informing his lawyers that he had been the judge, jury, and executioner of many, many people and that he now wanted to be the same for himself. He said he buried most of his victims in his crawl space and had disposed of five other bodies in the Plaines River. Gacy dismissed his victims as male prostitutes, hustlers, and liars to whom he gave the rope trick, adding that he occasionally awoke to find dead, strangled kids on his floor with their hands cuffed behind their back. He had buried their bodies in his crawl space because he believed they were his property. As a result of all the alcohol that he had been drinking, he fell asleep midway through his confession. His lawyers immediately arranged a psychiatric appointment for Gacy at 9 a.m. in the morning. On awakening several hours later, Gacy shook his head when informed by his lawyers that he had confessed to killing approximately 30 people, saying, well, I can't think about this right now. I've got things to do. He ignored his lawyer's advice regarding his scheduled appointment, and Gacy left their office to attend to the needs of his business. Gacy later recalled his memories of his final day of freedom as being hazy, adding that he knew his arrest was inevitable and that he intended to visit his friends and say his final farewells. After leaving his lawyer's office, Gacy drove to a gas station where, in the course of filling his rental car with gas, he handed a small bag of cannabis to the attendant who immediately handed the bag to the surveillance officers, adding that Gacy had told him, The end is coming for me. These guys are going to kill me. Gacy then drove to the home of a fellow contractor and friend, Ronald Rode. Gacy hugged Rode before bursting into tears and saying, I've been a bad boy. I killed 30 people, give or take a few. Gacy left Rode and drove to Cram's home to meet with Cram and Rossi. As he drove along the expressway, surveillance officers noted that he was holding a rosary to his chin, seeming to be praying while he drove. After talking with Cram and Rossi, Gacy had Cram drive him to a scheduled meeting with his lawyer, Leroy Stevens. As Gacy spoke with him, Cram informed the surveillance officers that Gacy had told him and Rossi that he confessed to over 30 murders with his lawyers the previous evening. Gacy then had Cram drive him to Mary Hill Cemetery, where his father was buried. As Gacy drove to various locations that morning, police outlined the formal draft of their second search warrant, specifically to search for the body of Robert Peast in the crawlspace. On hearing from the surveillance detectives that, in light of his erratic behavior, Gacy may be about to commit suicide, police decided to arrest him on a charge of possession and distribution of cannabis in order to hold him in custody, pretty much until they could get the search warrant and arrest him on murder charges. At 4.30 p.m. on December 21st, which was the eve of the hearing of Gacy's civil suit, Judge Marvin J. Peters granted the request for the second search warrant. After police informed Gacy of their intentions to search the crawlspace, for, specifically for the body of Robert, Gacy denied that the teenager was buried there and then confessed to have killed a young man in self-defense and buried his body under his garage. They already had the signed search warrant, so they drove to his home and got to it. On their arrival, officers found that Gacy had flooded the crawlspace with water, per- They waited for the water to drain, and then evidence technician Daniel Genty entered into the crawlspace. He crawled to the southwest area and began digging. Within minutes, he had uncovered flesh and a human arm bone. Genty immediately shouted to the investigators that they could charge Gacy with murder, adding, I think this place is full of kids. A police photographer then dug in the northeast corner of the crawlspace, uncovering a patella. The two then began digging in the southeast corner, uncovering two lower leg bones. These victims were too decomposed to be rubber pieced. As the body discovered in the northeast corner was later unearthed, a crime scene technician discovered the skull of a second victim alongside his body. Later excavations of the feet of the second victim revealed a further skull beneath the body. Because of this, technicians returned to the trench where the first body was unearthed, discovering the ribcage of a fourth victim within the crawlspace, confirming the scale of his murders. After being informed that the police had indeed found human remains in his crawlspace and that he would absolutely now face murder charges, Gacy told officers that he wanted to clear the air, adding that he had known his arrest was inevitable since the previous evening, which is when he spent the night on his couch in the lawyer's office. In the early morning hours of December 22nd and in the presence of his lawyers, Gacy provided a formal statement in which he confessed to murdering approximately 30 young males, all of whom he claimed entered his house willingly. Some victims he referred to by name, but Gacy claimed that he did not know or remember most of their names. He claimed that they were all teenage runaways or male prostitutes, the majority of whom he had buried in the crawl space. Gacy claimed to have only dug five of the victims' graves in this location and had his employees dig the remaining trenches so that he would have graves available. In January of 1979, he had planned to conceal the corpses even further by covering the entire hall space with concrete, so they barely caught him. When questioned specifically about Robert Peast, Gacy confessed to luring him to his house and strangling him on the evening of December 11th. He also admitted to having slept alongside Robert's body that evening before disposing of his corpse in the Des Plaines River in the early hours of December 13th. On his way to the police station, he had been in a minor traffic accident after disposing of Robert. His vehicle had slid off an ice-covered road and had to be towed from its location, accompanied by police and his lawyers. Gacy was driven to the spot on the I-55 bridge where he confessed to have thrown Roberts and four other victims' bodies into the Des Plaines River that summer. Gacy was then taken to his house and instructed to mark his garage floor with orange spray paint to show where he had buried the individual that he had supposedly killed in self-defense, who was John Buckovich. While officers were searching for the victims buried beneath the house, Gacy drew a rough diagram of his basement on a phone message sheet to show where their bodies were buried. 26 bodies were dug up from Gacy's crawlspace over the next week and two more were later unearthed elsewhere on the property. The Cook County Medical Examiner examined the bodies and each victim from the crawlspace was put in a body bag and placed near the front door to wait transportation to the mortuary. The crawlspace was marked in different sections and each body was given a number. By March ninth, 1979, 29 bodies were taken from his house. On April ninth, 1979, they finally identified a decomposed body from the Displains River as Robert Peast His autopsy report revealed that three wads of paper had been shoved down his throat while he was still alive, and it caused him to suffocate. Six of his victims have still never been identified. Gacy's trial began on February 6, 1980, and he was charged with 33 murders. Gacy spent over 300 hours with doctors at the Menard Correctional Center in Chester in the year before his trial. He underwent a variety of psychological tests before a panel of psychiatrists to determine whether or not he was mentally sane to stand trial. Gacy attempted to convince the doctors that he suffered from a multiple personality disorder. He claimed to have four personalities, the workaholic, the civic-minded contractor, the clown, the active politician, and a policeman called Jack Hanley, whom whom he referred to as Bad Jack. When Gacy had confessed to police, he claimed to be relaying the crimes of Jack, who detested homosexuality, and he viewed male prostitutes as weak, stupid, and degraded scum. His lawyers opted to have Gacy plead not guilty by reason of insanity to the charges against him. Three psychiatrists at Gacy's trial testified that they found him to be a paranoid schizophrenic with multiple personality disorder. The prosecutors presented the case that Gacy was sane and in full control of his actions. To support this, they produced several witnesses to testify to the premeditation of Gacy's actions and the efforts that he took to escape detection. Those doctors totally went against the defense doctor's claims of multiple personalities and insanity. David Cram and Rossi confessed that Gacy had made them dig drainage trenches and spread bags of lime in his crawlspace. Both testified that Gacy looked periodically into the crawl space to ensure they and other employees they supervised did not deviate from the precise locations that he had marked for them. On February 18th, Robert Stein testified that all the bodies recovered from Gacy's property were extremely decomposed and they were all skeletalized remains. Out of all of the autopsies that he performed, 13 victims had died of of asphyxiation, 6 of ligature strangulation, one of multiple stab wounds to the chest, and 10 in undetermined ways. When Gacy's defense team suggested that all 33 deaths were caused by accidental erotic asphyxia, Stein said this was highly improbable, and he's totally right. Jeffrey Rignall testified February 21st. While he was testifying and recounting what happened, he wept repeatedly while describing Gacy's torture of him in March of 1978. He was asked whether Gacy appreciated the criminality of his actions, and Rignall said that he believed that Gacy was unable to conform his actions to the law's expectations because of the beastly and animalistic ways that he attacked him. During specific cross-examination relating to the torture, Rignall vomited and he was excused from further testimony. On February 29th, Donald Voorhees, whom Gacy sexually assaulted in 1967, testified to his ordeal at Gacy's hands and his attempts to dissuade him from testifying by paying another youth to spray mace in his face and beat him. During the fifth week of the trial, Gacy wrote a personal letter to the judge requesting a mistrial for a number of reasons, including that he did not approve of his lawyer's insanity plea and that his lawyers had not allowed him to take the witness stand, which he apparently wanted to do so, for whatever reason. He also said that his defense had not called enough medical witnesses and that the police were lying with regard to verbal statements that he had made to detectives after his arrest and that, in any event, the statements were self-serving only for use by the prosecution. The judge addressed Gacy's letter by informing him that both counsels had not been denied the opportunity or the funds to summon expert witnesses to testify and that, under the law, he had the choice whether he wished to testify and was free to indicate as much to the judge if he wished to do so. On March 11th, final arguments by both the prosecution and the defense attorneys began, and they concluded the following day. The prosecuting attorney, Terry Sullivan, spoke first, outlining Gacy's history of abusing youths, the testimony of his efforts to avoid detection, and describing his surviving victims, Voorhees and denelli, as living dead. Referring to Gacy as the worst of all murderers, Sullivan stated that John Gacy has accounted for more human devastation than many earthly catastrophes but one must tremble i tremble when thinking about just how close he came to getting away with it all the jury was shown photos of gacy's 22 identified victims at the time and they were asked not to show sympathy but to show justice the prosecution asked the jury to show the same sympathy to show the same sympathy this man showed when he took these lives and put them there before showing the stack of photos into the opening of the trapdoor from Gacy's crawl space. The jury deliberation took less than two hours and they fo- found Gacy guilty of all 33 charges of murder. He was also found guilty of sexual assault and taking indecent liberties with a child, both convictions in reference to Robert Peast. At the time, his conviction for 33 murders was the most of which any person in the US history had been convicted. After more than two hours of deliberation, the jury sentenced Gacy to death for each murder, and his execution was set for June 2, 1980. After 14 years on death row, on May 9, 1994, Gacy was allowed to have a private picnic on the prison grounds with his family, and for his last meal, he ordered a bucket of KFC chicken, a dozen fried shrimp, french fries, fresh strawberries, and a Diet Coke. That evening, after a prayer with the Catholic priest, he was executed to the Stateville Execution Chamber to receive the lethal injection. The prosecutor from Gacy's trial said he got a much easier death than any of his victims. Over a thousand people were gathered outside of the Correctional Center and a lot of them wore t-shirts that said, no tears for the clown. His death was confirmed at 1258 a.m. on May 10, 1994 and his brain was removed. And that is all there is to say about John Wayne Gacy. I hope you guys enjoy this episode. It is a long one, but it has a lot of detail, and I'm sure you will not be disappointed. I'll see you in a couple days, guys. Bye.